This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hey, screen colleagues. This is Andrew Stewart, and I'm an associate professor of psychology at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film The Lost Daughter from 2021, made in the United States and Greece and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. The film stars Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, and Jesse Buckley, and I'm recommending this film for you because it's such a fascinating and deeply affecting examination of motherhood and one of the most authentic and genuine depictions I've ever seen in a film. I originally was interested in the film because I love Maggie Gyllenhaal as an actor, particularly her work in The Deuce, and was excited for her directorial debut. I'm also such a huge fan of Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, and while I'm not a parent, their incredible acting just drew me in to experience their struggles and joys of parenting. Oh, and Rox, I stole your cat's doll. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by the. 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 Community! Welcome to RFU. This is Rox Sommer. I'm Hugh Mannon. And I'm Soren Sorensen. And we're here to discuss what film, Soren? The Lost Daughter is the 2021 debut film from writer-director Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is best known as an actor. Olivia Colman stars as Leda Caruso, a college professor and Cambridge Mass resident currently on vacation in Greece. After some terse interactions with a boisterous family on the beach, it becomes clear that Leda's quiet holiday may not be as relaxing as she once expected. When the family invades the beach, seemingly a daily occurrence, Leda settles for people-watching, most notably Nina, an attractive young mother played by Dakota Johnson, who captures Leda's gaze from the moment she appears on screen. When Nina's daughter Elena wanders off, Leda lends a hand. During the short search, as members of the panicked family call out for missing Elena, we are introduced in flashback to young Leda, played by Jessie Buckley, years earlier when her daughters were much younger, similarly trying to find her own lost daughter, Bianca. Neither lost daughter is missing for very long. The film's title metaphorically casts both Leda and Nina as lost, both as mothers and as spouses living lesser lives than the ones they imagined. They're an awkward pair, mostly exchanging pleasantries and comparing notes on parenting. Nina says she's happy, though she appears to be completely miserable. Leda is cryptic about her memories of motherhood. Coleman's Leda is not in great health, it seems, though her deteriorating or perhaps deteriorated mental and physical condition are only hinted at and never exploited. She drinks too much, but honestly, who doesn't on vacation? And she's getting older. Again, who isn't getting older? As a friend of mine likes to say, everything's a rental. The other important lost object in the film is Elena's cherished doll. Ultimately, the lost daughter is about several varieties of loss, lost objects, lost people, and lost time. None of these lost things are easy to find or get back. The Lost Daughter is nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Gyllenhaal, Best Actress for Coleman, and Best Supporting Actress for Buckley. The Oscars air March 27th. What did you What did you all think of this film? This film is hard to watch. Hard to watch in a good sense. Hard to watch in the sense that it's horrific, yet it's not a horror film. Um, all I can tell you is that I don't like beaches for the exact reasons articulated in this film. <laughs> Wait, no, no, the noisy families that crash them. Totally. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that, so like what happens here, uh, in the early scenes is that Lita is just chilling on the beach, enjoying her, you know, time off as an academic. I think we're supposed to think she's from Harvard taking some notes on some Italian piece of poetry 
And all of a sudden, like 12 to 14 people crash the beach and it's young kids and they're screaming. And the father's like, hey, quiet down. There's this fucking person over here. And that's her. That's Olivia Colman. And, you know, not only are the kids obnoxious, the parents are obnoxious. And in some ways, like what we've got is like the classic beach problem, which is that everybody disagrees on what constitutes beach etiquette. People are there for different reasons. People behave different ways. And like, that's why I'm never, ever, as long as I live, going to be comfortable with going to the beach. Yeah, I've been I've been a certified scuba diver since I was 14 years old. And if I'm on a beach, I better be going 150 feet underwater, like shortly after. I have no desire (laughs) to sit on a beach with a book. And kind of and just bake like I just that just sounds awful to me. If there's one grain of sand between my toes, I'm not going to have a good day. Meanwhile, I got my PhD in Los Angeles. I studied for my my comprehensive exams on the beach. Um, it's a delightful way, <laughs> place to read hundreds and hundreds of pages of critical theory. Um, and yeah, those children are evil for spoiling her yeah, time. Yeah. And part of, part of me wished that we got like a moment of that joy of reading quietly in a new place. <laughs> I don't know. You know a, it's not very cinematic. Film, yeah. <laughs> um, because out of the gate, there's a way that like something is amiss and something is wrong. This vacation does not start off like it never <laughs> um, has a blissful moment with like the exception of one very belated dance scene. But even that is comes to a quick end. So there's a loud family on the beach. There's the rotten fruit uh, in the basket back in her rental. There's the Insects. bug on the pillow. Yeah. She gets pelted with a pine cone. Um, she has this encounter with teenage boys at the movies. It's just like all these very generic ways in which like a peaceful time could be interrupted, but it's um, it's never even with peaceful teenage boys at the movies. Sounds like Ugh. it could be it could have been something different. It was mostly just a fight, right? Like they're 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 hurling epithets at her and being terrible. Yeah, yeah, right. A lot of it, you know. I, I feel like I'm. A broken record here because I keep bringing up the fact with respect to various films that they're like the gothic but in some ways like this is like low-key gothic so it's not that really obvious horrible scary uh, obfuscated dark shadowy things are happening but it's like little things are happening so like as you said you know the fruit goes bad there's maggots in the fruit there's a cicada either pooping or laying eggs on a pillowcase so like those things are you know, they're gothic in the sense that like real life is gothic, but but it is kind of this, this invasion of an otherwise placid space and very uh, importantly, a foreign space. Right. So she's she's out of her element entirely. Um, she's from Cambridge, but originally from Leeds or her family's from Leeds. And in some ways, like the fact that she's on this this made up island, what's it called? Uh, Chiapoli. And it's actually the Greek island of Spetsis. I guess I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, so she's out of her element entirely. And the fact that she is kind of uh, encountering these weird, like the pine cone being the ultimate example of this, which <laughs> I think we should talk about these weird little, you know, incursions or ruptures in her otherwise placid space makes it feel a little bit gothic. What, what about the pine cone though? I, I watched it twice and the second time it was very clear that it did not fall out of the tree and was probably thrown at her. Uh, I, I can't imagine a pine cone falling out of a tree and injuring somebody. So I feel like I feel like when I first saw it, I was like, oh, someone threw a rock at her. Um, but I don't I, I don't know who would have done that. But I think there are it almost doesn't matter because as you 
as she the 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 dishonesty of this um you know she stole this doll and as the guilt of that grows or as the apprehension about being around the family grows we are getting the sense that whereas the audience we're not really sure if they're really staring at her and really kind of like stalking her or whether a lot of this is in her head and so we don't know and in fact you know yes she hurt herself but there are there are these sort of creeping suspicions that she might not be all there mentally um which is makes it even more troubling as the as the film goes on yeah she's not the most reliable narrator i mean it's it's let's just quickly say she as soren pointed out she in fact steals the doll Right. And we don't know, like when we first see the doll in her purse, it's not even clear how it got there. But then it becomes clear that she took it. And so it yeah. makes, makes her seem less than stable in some way. What's interesting is after Leda helps find Nina's daughter and Nina comes up to thank her and, and then but then also explains that why she's still her daughter's still crying is because her doll has now gone missing. Mm-hmm. It's this most intense stare. And there this film is filled with like stares between women, mm-hmm. like between like women, like the sort of connection or knowingness of womanhood, of motherhood, but also that isn't like some sort of utopian, <laughs> blissful, like Mother Earth situation, but like also uh tense with anxiety and possible conflict and she's dakota johnson is staring in her eyes and at that moment like the first time you watch you're like what is going on here like what is she being accused of she found the girl but and we don't learn as viewers that she has probably she has in that moment already stolen the doll but we don't even know that we don't know that till she gets back to her car and opens her purse um and so there's so I think that's an example of where we're getting Lita's perspective, like her fear uh, of scrutiny um, and of guilt, uh, even though we don't know what it's even <laughs> what she's even feeling guilty about as of yet. I mean, the film, you know, in the swimming shots and in all sorts of the early shots in the film, very uh, specifically and concretely establishes our perspective, aligns our perspective with Lita's. And I think one of the ways that it does this, it really resonates with some research I've been doing about other sorts of films. And that is, it it puts us at a middle distance from this family who comes down the beach. So they're not far away, but they're also not close. They're sort of in this vague space in the middle of things where you can't quite make out exactly what's going on with them, but you get a hint. And so it's very much this sort of, you know, to do the Lacanian thing, it's this objet ah like space. It's neither here nor there. It kind of, um, it's like a signifier without a signified. We we know that something's being signified here, but we can't quite make it out. And I think like it connects in that way. Like I can't stop thinking about the ways this film connects to Mikhail Haneke's um, Funny Games, Cachet, films that also embody this kind of middle distance shot, even something like Wicker Man, um, which is a, a, a film about a guy who goes to this remote foreign location and the first shots we see of the locals are at this middle distance and in some ways like I kind of think the film is very deliberately setting her up setting us up aligned with her as alien to this only to draw us in so that that family ultimately so we get shots that cut across to Nina and her daughter very close like up to your nose close and that's disturbing because it kind of throws us off from the middle distance that we've been accustomed to, but then the family starts to come closer and closer and closer. And then before you know it, Callie's rubbing, you know, um, ointment on her back to (laughs) assuage the pine cone injury. I think vacation and, you know, being in a place 
like this, where it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be some solitude, like by design. It's it's, it's not it's not supposed to be lonely, but she she'd like to be by herself, um, and is immediately kind of, you know, um, interrupted not only by this family but by the the building's caretaker, uh, played by Ed Harris, um, who is kind of sort of hitting on her a little bit and 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 they're learning a little bit about each other but she really just wants to be alone i mean it's like it's really clear in the beginning and in the in the scene in, between um olivia coleman and ed harris in that in the bar in the restaurant that's downstairs from where she's staying she's leaning back as if she's being blown over by a leaf blower or something like she really <laughs> doesn't want to be there and it's like unwelcoming and i think that that can i think that sort of resonates with people especially somebody that likes to read and wants to be alone and read and just enjoy the scenery. And, it, and she all of a sudden is involved in this domestic drama and this romantic drama and the, you know, and now, and it's bringing up things about her past that she'd rather not bring up. The apartment's great. It's a good one. Bright and white. Feels like you're on a boat almost. Yes. No, no, I got it. Oh no, really? I insist. Oh, thank you. Just let me know if I can do anything for you. I will, thank you. Do you mind if I finish my dinner now, Lyle? Oh, sure. Let's talk about her stealing this doll because you guys say that it suggests something is off for you. Uh, and I get that, like, stealing is bad. We live in a society where that's the basic tenant. <laughs> but I will, I will note that at first you're like, why did she steal this doll? And I think there's still like a certain amount of open-endedness into interpretation. But I just want to put a fact on the table that, that her behavior with this doll is very particular, such that she cleans the, this doll is filthy dirty. We've seen the little girl pouring like sand and mm -hmm. beach water, ocean water on it. Um, and so she cleans this doll up a freaking like worm comes out of its mouth um, and she pulls it out with pliers like she cares for this doll she gets it clean and then she buys it new clothes and dresses right. it and does ultimately return it um, and considering this is a film that's in large part about mothering there's both like you know various forms of of mothering or caretaking going on between actual mothers and daughters, but also between her and Nina, between her and Callie, um, and between and her and this yeah. doll. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a doll in a flashback that uh, doesn't get such nice treatment. So there's also, you know, yes, is this doll uh, a stand-in for her daughters who maybe she feels like she didn't mother the best is this doll standing in for her doll which she she and right. her daughters didn't right. mother the best um and the doll is called like mini mama or something right and it's almost like mm -hmm. the doll isn't even a daughter it's a it's a mother right it's yeah. a, it's a it's a security blanket of some sort um yeah i i uh i don't i guess i guess i would i wouldn't i would i would agree with you completely about the the goal of 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 taking the doll like I wouldn't accuse her of like petty larceny even I mean I guess that's what it is factually but you know what what I think maybe in her in her brain like being logical about it was just like I'm gonna further endear myself to this family by 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 stealing this doll and then returning it heroically like I did their daughter but then it, it becomes this surrogate thing for her and in, in, in her space there and she wants to care for it and and it and it you know becomes a replacement or a proxy this probably says more about my own parenting, meaning how I was parented. But my initial interpretation was that she was depriving the girl of the doll so that the girl would learn the lesson of what it feels like to experience a loss and a fear of loss, much as her mother did when she walked off. No, I, I agree. I agree. I think she and she's 
deliberately cruel to this family. I mean, and, and to all of them actually, in, in different in different scenes. And I think she she revels in um, you know young pretty. Nina being miserable and she sort of is like at least I'm not her like in a way and even though she's still kind of probably jealous with what Nina looks like and remi- and is reminded of her in her youth and 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 being um you know sexualized or being desired by men I, I you know I, I think I think that cuts both ways though I think that she that there is a way that she is a little bit um, there's a little bit too much schadenfreude involved too. She's just kind of like, I'm glad that this person is in pain. Yeah. Um, I don't think, it, I, and I don't think we need to settle on one side or the other, whether it's like an intentional willful withholding of the doll or whether it's sort of unconscious and she's not entirely aware of why she's doing what she's doing. I mean, it could be, it could be a little of both. It could be fully one or fully the other. The film doesn't settle on either one of those things either. But I do think like when we get to the end and without necessarily revealing what happens then, you know, there's an element to that that feels like an epiphany. Where did you find her? No, I took her. Why? I don't know. You don't know? No. But I don't understand. You did you think that the doll that the doll wasn't good for us? I was just playing. Playing? We were all Messed up. You saw us. I'm an unnatural mother. What's wrong with you? You know, you caused us all sorts of trauma by keeping this doll. Who would do something like that, right? Um, In some sense, she's right. And I think this is why, again, not to hammer this point too hard, but this is why the film reminds me a lot of Hanukkah. So, like... In cachet, you have a situation where you're forced to identify really strongly with George, the protagonist. And what you find out over the course of the film is that this thing that seems to be being inflicted upon him in this sort of torturous, tormenting way ultimately is all his fault. And furthermore, he's the one that's inflicting torment on somebody else. And I really think that that's what this film does seems to want to do right is it puts us with Olivia Coleman we kind of come to believe that she's got noble motives and that she's being persecuted and this family really are bad people quote unquote as the as the pool boy beach house kid says and ultimately like who's who's wrong here well I kind of think for deep-seated unconscious problematic reasons that it's Lita you know, she's wrong and the family's kind of the family is rough around the edges and potentially criminal as they are. They're not in the wrong. Yeah. I mean, and and it's complicated. I mean, it's like they're, they're all lost. They're all they're all problematic, I suppose. So I will mention what happens at the end. Anybody that wants to turn the podcast off, go ahead. But, um, you know, Lita is assaulted you know, stabbed with a hairpin that she bought for Nina by Nina at the end of the film and is bleeding, possibly bleeding out at the end of the film. We don't really know what's going on as she, as she talks to her daughters on the phone, um, both of her daughters on the phone. So it's, it's pretty, you know, there, there is definitely violence there in that family to the point where Nina, rather than saying you're crazy and just walking away, actually stabs Lita. Or even slapping. Like there are so many other, (laughs) there's so much between yelling and stabbing. (laughs) Yes, yes. There's a lot of steps there. (laughs) There are a lot of steps there. And uh, this is the thing. So I haven't quite formulated this as a thesis, but I also feel like part of the trap of the film, and this might just be the fault of like narrative (laughs) filmmaking and that it stages 
always stages something as a matter of individuals and characters and conflict between individuals. But there's, I, I worry, or I, 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 what stresses me out about this movie is that it seems to be about like the impossibility of like motherhood under patriarchy to put it in like really broad terms um and you know she says at multiple times things like children are a crushing responsibility um when she's fighting in a flashback with her husband he's and who's going to take care of the screaming kids and he's like i'm working and she's like i'm suffocating it seems as if even as she has extricated herself from that situation and to a certain extent repaired her relationship with her daughters who are now adults and she is like you know, a successful woman academic on vacation in Greece on her own, that like she cannot escape what is suffocating for people like her in the world as it is, right? Such that like everywhere she goes, even against her own like conscious desires, at least like uh, the same uh, patterns of relationships between women um, and between women within <laughs> a context where men run the scene, um, repeat themselves. Yeah. I mean, at the risk of at the risk of saying the most mansplainy patriarchal thing <laughs> you've ever heard in your life, I'm gonna say something that completely underscores what you're <gasps> claiming, which is that, you know, the theme, so the the score, uh, it's sparse and it only happens mm -hmm. here and there, but there's this theme that comes up at a couple or three points in the film and it's kind of this dun, 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 dun. And it's, it's kind of a knockoff version. It's kind of one of those we don't want to pay the rights knockoff versions of It's a Man's World by James Brown. Yeah, it's like a, it has that sound-alike quality to totally. that song. You're absolutely and the, right. the lyrics are, you know, the lyrics are, this is a man's world, but it wouldn't be nothing without a woman or a girl. And so in some ways, yeah. like, it speaks to everything you're talking about. And I think it's completely, you know, that's obviously an intentional choice. Yeah, and that song is called Let Me Tell You All About It by Daikon Hinchliffe. That song didn't really work that well for me at the beginning of the film. I, I think I was sort of, I, I liked that there was a talking head song in the middle of it, but I, th I wasn't sure what was going on with that song. And then it ended with that song. And I was like, man, like you're, that's, that's a lot of that song for this film. Um, and, and I, yeah, I was, I, I was sort of, it sort of seemed a little forgettable, but I, you know, the, the, the tie into man's world or something, um, you know, I, I think was not, you know, <laughs> incidental. Yeah. Um, so I'll say, and part of this has to do with like this feminist theme and this not getting being women not being able to do everything, women not being able to escape the structures um, into which they are born. And that is that the flashbacks really confused me. If this is a, it, it uh, there are references that indicate that this is, film is meant to be set in the present. She has a smartphone, Black Lives Matter is referenced. Right. Um, and yet, there's very little modern technology so such that it could perhaps be like 10 or 20 years ago um, for much of it. Um, but it, no, it's like 2020 ish. Her, the flashbacks are to when her daughters are roughly five and eight, which uh, should be just under 20 years. So it should be like circa 2000. And yet nothing in the flashbacks really looks circa 2000, you know, like the color scheme is very 60s, 70s. The phones and the houses are very 90s. And, and I get that, like, not everyone has the most updated technology, but these are like two academics, prestigious academics living this like middle class, but, comf you know, comfortable life. 
Um, and there does finally pop out a cell phone when she's finally having an affair and she needs to like talk to him uh, on the down low. But there seems to be a way that I feel like the film is like thematizing problems that were really most prominent uh, culturally in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, this is a totally. very like Betty for Dan <laughs> film, like asking like what can women be when they're finally free to be themselves? And this film, I, like I can't wrestle with how depressing an answer it is, like that it doesn't seem to be able to envision an outside, which is not to say like I don't want, I want an easy film or a nice happy film. Um, I get wrestling with these difficult feelings but if anyone, like, it seems as if this is a character who has um, done quite well for herself and has a certain amount of self-understanding and self-awareness that I don't know. I just wanted more joy, <laughs> more joy for her. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, to this point yeah. about the, the the weird placement of it in time. So it feels like, so logically we should be flashing back to 2000, but it feels like we're flashing back to 1975 or 80. So like there's all sorts of things that point to that. And I think we've talked about this in a past episode and I can't remember if we can't, if we actually hit on the term for this, but films that do this deliberate mixing up of time frame, like it follows does this. There's a bunch of films that kind of, you know, that that you, you have a feeling that we're in 1975 and then all of a sudden you see a a brand new car from 2015. It's like, wait a minute, what, right. (laughs) When is this set? So this feels that way. And and the kind of, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the picture of academia that is, (laughs) that is portrayed here. So like one thing about this that really gets me is that moment when professor Hardy, who she ends up having an affair with in the flashback, you know, this really, I think, smarmy guy, like it feels to me like Peter Sarsgaard's performance here set back academics by 30 years, but he's got this heavy beard. He says, Ricor turns him on. But what I really want to consider, and, and I promise I'm going to bring this back to Auden, is that which is not only ineffable, but unthought. I've been really turned on by Ricoeur's recent thinking on linguistic hospitality. And uh, <laughs> what about his name, Ricoeur? Gosh, I should really lean into that second syllable because, God, he comes from the heart. And I was like, nobody, <laughs> nobody in 2000 he, is he going to stand a conference behind the podium. He's out. He's out in front of the podium like he wants oh to be everybody's God. best friend. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. And, and he's <laughs> busting out these terrible puns. And but just that line turns him on like absolutely nobody would say that in 2000. It would have been unthinkable. Um, and so even the hierarchies that we're seeing in academia and the kind of uh, the Professor Cole character, this sort of sad old man academic yeah. who's, who's been lost. <laughs> you know, there's an element to that that feels ancient. Uh, it feels yeah. like ancient history. And so I, I really, yeah, I mean, I do feel like in some ways the film is kind of playing games with temporality and kind of creating a little creative time travel for us in those scenes. Yeah, it's hard to understand like how much making fun of us they are doing, but also simultaneously how much romanticizing. Like, like I do think there's a way that 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 at least that not his words if you listen to his words which i listened to more carefully the second time around and they're so disgusting but um but like his mode of performance where you're like let me leave the lectern and like come speak to your souls like it's it is like a sort of romanticized vision um 
and like a I don't know somehow the old man meeting new man because he dares to like cite a woman and put her yeah. grant her this genius position um such that she'll sleep with him and that and that makes it seem like it's 1940 <laughs> right. right yeah I mean, that, this, that this, even takes it further that, into that, that building and the wardrobe in that scene I thought it was like yeah post-war or like maybe even before like in the 20s or something I was like this is so ancient feeling right I mean but yeah it was it was that that's that sequence particularly felt like it was ancient you know compared to when it's supposed to be taking place what about the like Woodstock hippie hikers that show up in the middle distance <laughs> of that weird shot like I just thought they're gonna murder these people like when I first saw them out the door like like this is it's over. But so I'm I'm thinking like if I'm if I'm in an Airbnb and you know in a, in a rural location and and two people are standing out and staring at the house neither my partner nor me nor I would let these people in. Like it's just this is I, I'm glad that I married the person I married. It's just like they're, they're thirsty, let them in. It's like no. Have you have you ever It's Jordan Peele's us. You know, it's the force. <laughs> yes, yeah. people stick to the family in the in the driveway. I think she says something to him about it not being the eighties, maybe even like like maybe when they were younger, they would have taken chances like that. And she's like, "We can't do that anymore." And then it it ends up working out for her. But it's not even just an Airbnb; it's another professor's house because there's this whole business right. about the kids like yes. making a mess. Yes, but in the eight, um, the eighties was the rise of like stranger danger and all this stuff. That's when this stuff stopped. I mean, so I, I feel like. I feel like there's some romanticized notion of like inviting strangers in if you're if you're if you're a hippie. But then when they come in, in in a sense, her 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 desires to flee the family are are really confirmed. Um, and, she, and at one point she even whispers to the um to one of the travelers and says like, "Is his are his daughters okay? Right? Because he's not with his his family. So she's already kind of like had the seeds planted of like I'm going to escape my family or I, or this seems to work out for these people. Maybe I can do it too. Um, yeah. and not be with my kids and, and not feel that sort of magnetic pull of, this, of, this, by of the my way, offspring. Yeah. I mean, this points us to, I think the critical line in the whole film, which is when Nina asks Lita, uh, what did it feel like without them? In other words, when you left your daughters for mm. a, a spell for a long spell, what did it feel like being without them? I left. When the oldest was seven and the youngest was five, I left. <laughs> I abandoned them and I didn't see them for three years. You didn't see your children for three years? No. Who took care of them? Their father and my mum, and then I came back for them. What did it feel like without them? Amazing. Felt like I'd been trying not to explode, and then I exploded. It doesn't sound amazing. Okay. Lita starts to tear up, like heavily tears up, and says, "It felt amazing." And I think that that's the that's the critical line. So she says, "I'm an un, at some point." Lita says, "I'm an unnatural mother." Mm-hmm. But like, isn't the point of the film that like anybody, any reasonable person would feel that way? And if you're not, if you don't feel that way when you're deep in the kind of heavy depths of parenthood, what's wrong with you? Like, of course, everybody wants an escape at some point. Um, she acted on it, and that makes her the bad mother. But at the same time, you know what we're seeing in this other family is someone who's sticking with their child, apparently sort of kind of with affairs on the side sticking with her child and not not escape not fully like just taken well, off 
Yeah, or or she's pre taking off. Um, that you know, could it's be. like this yeah. is like she's she's warming up to doing to doing yeah. some, something like this as well because her husband is probably not faithful and probably not very kind to her and isn't always in the picture and so she has reason to sort of you know to 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 bounce. But but I I um yeah that was that was another um, to Rox's point about there not being a lot of joy in this person's life. Um, you, you know you're you were flashing back to these moments and they're not really as joyful as you she she's not even it doesn't seemingly not even enjoying her time with the smarmy peter sarsgaard you know i i just yes there are these fleeting glimpses of this kind of free, sexual freedom and 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 you know she's traveling and and maybe her career's going well and those sorts of things but after this 3 years she has to go back to to her children and so you're damned if you do and damned if you don't which is really sad because she doesn't even get it out of her system in a way it's just kind of like you know messes up those 3 years of her life i guess yeah. Yeah, it's hard because even this like most professional success of this like apparently incredible god this godlike figure citation of her at the conference gets so like folded in with her affair with him. And even as we understand that she like leaves her husband and her daughters not just for him, but because she needs out, such I think there's a fight with her husband, uh, where she's like says, I've left him, meaning like like she's yeah. yeah she's just got she just needs her time yeah um, it wasn't about him at all he was it wasn't about him at all he was, yeah yeah so. but it's like so folded into the world <laughs> yeah it's a man's world like i just i want i want to know what it looks i don't know i want her time her professional success her like intellectual joy like i don't know her self-esteem it seems like it should be there, but it's it's not, and it's not like from. It has to do with what we said at the start with this vacation going wrong, out of the gate, feeling awkward, feeling off right away. Um, I don't know if she's achieved a piece that's being unsettled or it's just miserable. I mean, isn't it? I, I don't know. This is a hypothesis, and I'm absolutely not settled on this idea at all. But it, isn't the film? kind of like it's sort of bringing real reality into the filmmaking fantasy into the Hollywood fantasy if yeah. you will it's not a Hollywood film but it brings sort of like you know this is how real people experience life so you know you you sort of uh, make your way through you have a career you have some failings with your family but you reconcile them and in the final analysis things kind of aren't that happy like one of the things that like I jotted down about this is if you know, because it be, the film begins with these tedious little picky day-to-day problems. Like I put my umbrella on the beach here and now these people are going to ask me to move it and it almost like demand that I move to so that they can have their birthday party in the space that I'm sitting in. You know, that is a, a, an extremely non-Hollywood. I mean, it's a problem that you could see in a comedy. So mm-hmm. like I kind of thought to myself, what what we're seeing here in these opening scenes are like imagine if Curb Your Enthusiasm were dead serious <laughs> and not a comedy, like life and death. Yeah. And that's kind of what we get. And so it, it this film really does take things down to these hyper-specific, mundane uh, events, but also like really mundane emotions and kind of, you know, how things really truly are for actual real people. And it, and it just rebuffs the fantasy at every step. Um, with the only, I think the only kind of turn in that is the fact that she's after she's stabbed with the with the hat pin. Um, is that what it's called? A hat pin? Yeah, 
Yeah. She's stabbed with a hat pin and kind of is going full Walter Neff, bleeding, you know, and walking away into the distance and sort of has some goal, but she doesn't know quite where she's going. And then she gets on her phone and talks to her daughters. And in some sense, that's the redeeming moment. Part of the anxiety of the first like two thirds of the film is that we don't know what happened with her daughters, right? It's a big climactic moment when she reveals I left my daughters for three years. And so we're wondering if one of them died, like, mm-hmm. um, and and yet, so, okay, so she left her daughters. Perhaps she wasn't the best mother, but, like, we they've all, like, she's in touch. <laughs> like, they're ca- talking on the phone. Yeah. Um, it's 15 years later, and I'm just, I'm just, like, wondering. I get why she calls her daughters at the end, but I'm just wondering why it's so traumatic to see a girl playing on the beach still. Um, like, like what, what about now? Like, why has, have these feelings not been partially like why is she still so raw do you Mm. know what i mean so i don't just mean she needs like i want like some julia roberts eat pray love like moment for her i just also like want a sense of there's almost like the her and the flashbacks strikes me as a more emotionally grown person as her at 48 so I'm like what happened it's repression I feel like she's just this deeply repressed bound up British person (laughs) right I mean it's no coincidence that she's British the most you know repressed of all people (laughs) and I think kind of it's there in Olivia Coleman's performance right so it's this kind of like anytime she speaks to someone I I kind of think to myself she's being a little rude there Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah you know with Ed Harris like everything she says to him she's kind of just not warm and she's she's very bound up and kind of tightly caught up in herself and I think that that's you know what happened what happened to her like that's what happened to her she became this deeply repressed person she goes out for a weekend away and what ends up happening like every guilt and fear and anxiety that she has it becomes externalized in this family that comes and invades her space so everything about everything that she's repressed is expressed by this family yeah. And it just boom, you know, conflict, conflict, conflict yeah, to the point it, that she ends up stabbed, right? It could it could have been a happier story. I mean, it it could have been a place where she actually found solitude and solace and peace that she actually wanted. Um, but she's just kind of I almost said needled. That's a little too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. But she's constantly being harassed and kind of harangued by these different people. I, I don't know how many times I've been in a theater um and when people are misbehaving and wanted to stand up and say, This is unacceptable. <laughs> that was kind of a I, I was I almost like stood up and clapped at that point because I thought that was it's like like, this is unacceptable. Like, what, isn't there anybody going to do anything about this? And it's just this. That, like, that's awful, a moment where. Moment. <laughs> that's a moment where you wish you had a hat pin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, several hat pins, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I will say, okay. So, so to to push back on my own argument here, there. I early on I said there was. If you one don't moment, do it, who's going to? <laughs> I actually think that there's two moments where there are there is joy and connection. And so one is the living on a prayer dance scene, but one is earlier and it's in this really unusual dinner scene with Will where she runs into the beach boy who she, who, who she had bristled at his initial like attempts at helping her. So even then he's being polite and kind and she's like, yeah, yeah like, leave yeah. me alone but you yeah know, he's literally like offering her like ice cream or water or you know he's just being to nice move her yeah. move yeah. her chair into the shade yeah um but they have like established a rapport since then she's opened up a bit and so she asks him out to dinner and they connect over his studies because she's a professor they connect over um her daughters because they're the same age as he is um 
And he even he asks her if her daughters are beautiful because she's beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, are they gonna kiss? Like, is is that like there's actually more romantic chemistry in that scene than in either of the Ed Harris scenes? Um, and just to, to be clear, in case you think that's creepy, Ed Harris is just as much older than her as she is older than this guy. So. Yeah, no, it's not it's not presented as creepy at all. In fact, in some ways, yeah. you're kind of rooting for her to kiss somebody, yeah. right? Because she'll have some have, joy. Have a fling with the, the young guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The, like, those are the moments of hope for me where we see her, like, letting her guard down a little, yeah. opening herself up. Yeah. Um, there's also there's also an attraction with Nina. I mean, when she yes. obviously who who's not attracted to that person, but the 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 thing is, Nina has an attraction for her as well. So it's the, it's the, it, the eyes. Yeah, yeah. Intense. Well, and, and and not only that, when when she's when she's first sort of introducing her to this concept of using these hat pins to keep the hat on, um, Nina kind of reaches out and touches the cloth of her scarf and is like admiring her bathing suit and her scarf. There's this kind of like mutual appreciation thing going on between them, which I don't think is. I mean, it's never it never goes beyond that, but it's always present. And then you you get these really tight shots. You get these medium close ups and close ups where you don't have them in other shots with them. I think so. There's an intimacy there. That's not explored any further, similarly to the Ed Harris character or, or Will, the, uh, the the staff at the <laughs> at the at the beach. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's this thing with like straight women that I really don't understand, like where like there is this connection and they like it like friendship sometimes seems so awkward <laughs> um, because there is this element always of a sense of also competition mm. uh, such that when they do connect it has to somehow transform instead of, of a matter of peers uh, like friends or lovers, <laughs> um, at least ideally into like, it becomes this mother daughter thing and that, the, and that they like can, and, and that, that they can place themselves in the same position as mothers and daughters and mothers of daughters mm. and in order to forget about the men. Yeah. I mean, it- I agree. I, I also think it's kind of like the metaphor in this film is it's mother daughter, but it's also neighbor neighbor. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get these na- these people who have are kind of forced into this position of being neighbors on this beach. And, you know, the, the whole the, the great line, one of my favorite lines of all time, like everybody has a problem with their neighbors, like in some sense, like that's what neighbors exist to do. And that's what makes them <laughs> neighbors. But like Freud's line about um you know, the, the, the second commandment is love thy neighbor as thyself, but none of us can do it because we all hate ourselves. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. in some ways, like that's the tension that plays out, you know, between her and ne- her and Nina being the kind of ultimate neighbors mm-hmm. in this. And as it plays out over the course of the film, you know, it's explosive. Um, yeah. You know, they can't they they absolutely exist in a relationship of, of competition both because they're straight women and because they're neighbors and neighbors can't by definition get along. That's not what neighbors do. I mean, I'd like to think that, of course, neighbors can get along. I've got plenty of neighbors <laughs> that I've gotten along with over the years, but mostly not. I mean, that's yeah, one of those yeah. reasons. There are more that I don't get along with. <laughs> totally. There's more yeah. that, that I don't get along with. Um, and yeah. it's for little kind of picayune, like we were talking about, these little infractions, these little mm-hmm. kind of day-to-day mundane things that piss you off. But ultimately, like, I, I really, this film, I, you know, we, we talked about this a little before we ever did the podcast, but this film is like almost to the threshold of being so upsetting for me to watch that I need to set it aside. It's almost there. Like I don't get, I don't get wigged out by 
wigged out. There's a 70s phrase. <laughs> I don't get wigged out by horror and slasher films. I get wigged out by films about people who invade my space on the beach. Mm. Just don't go to the beach. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> never, ever go on the, Never get off the boat. Absolutely goddamn right. Boat. I just watched that film the other day, too. And oh, I love it. Um, all right. Would we recommend this film? Yeah, I would absolutely 100% recommend this film. Uh, you know, if you told me that this was a film about a stolen doll, I wouldn't want to watch it. But that, that would have been my loss. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't wait to see what Maggie Gyllenhaal directs next. I think she's massive talent. And like for this to be anybody's debut as a writer director is ridiculous. Jesus. Like absolutely fantastic. Titanic yeah. talent. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much, Andrew. And please give me my cat's doll back. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Andrew. Maggie, if you're listening, give us a call. We'd love to have you. <laughs> Honest to God, like one of Seriously. my favorite people in Hollywood. Wonderful. Yeah. Any any of the people, except for Peter Sarsgaard, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, email us at rfu at clarku.edu. That's rfu at clarku.edu. Or you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. A lot of podcasts have nicknames for their listeners, and we don't. And they tend to be like somehow tied to the theme of the podcast or to the name. I was just listening to uh, Sora WTF. He has a lot of them. Yeah. And I was listening to Morbid, and they just refer to their listeners mm. as weirdos. Yes. Like, yeah. hey, weirdos. And it's just every time. And it's universal. My favorite murder is as murderinos. Yeah. And they call Thank themselves you. this, right? Yeah. Hugh, I thought we had one. So Mom. <laughs> mom. Mom. Yeah. yeah. Our, our moms all know. Uh, uh, yeah. Hi, mom. We should all just listen. say hi, mom. Yeah. For a second, hi, I mom. thought you said, I thought we had one. Your mom. <laughs> <laughs> we all just call them your mom. Hi, your mom. This is all.